Hello and welcome to a brand new series of Life Solved. I'm John Worsey and in this podcast my colleagues and I bring you stories of the world-changing research happening here at the University of Portsmouth. We investigate how your world looks set to change and bring forth new ideas and findings on health and well-being, democracy and society, emerging tech and security and the environment. In our last series we found out how water is political how forest fires could reshape Britain's future, and how human drone operators are impacted by their work during warfare. And our subjects this time will be just as diverse and just as thought-provoking. You can catch up on Series 1 anytime, and each week we'll bring you a new conversation on this channel. To kick off Series 2, we're focusing on how sustainable environments are vital to the economies and the way we live. Recent world events have meant that our focus has been trained more closely than ever on the delicate relationship between human activity, our natural world and a climate. In the past few months, we've started to ask new questions and see our world and nature as ever more vital to our survival and well-being. For that reason, we're starting with a look at the world's plastics problem. Just 14% of the world's plastic bottles end up recycled. A vast amount of the rest goes into our oceans and delicate marine ecosystems, taking hundreds of years to break down. The oceans cover more than 70% of the world's surface. Now, our location here on the south coast means that Portsmouth has a unique perspective and a unique opportunity to study marine life and water conditions. We're also leading the charge towards a revolution in unsustainable plastics production, combining our research to work with businesses, policymakers and people to eliminate the environmental and health damage caused. I'm joined by Professor John McGeehan and Professor Steve Fletcher to talk about the role of healthy oceans in our economy and how we might tackle the current plastics crisis. Thank you both for joining me. Um, Steve, let's start with you. Your focus is on how economic policy around ocean resources can improve sustainability. Can you explain uh, what the term circular plastics economy means. Thank you very much. Um, well, a circular plastics economy is really encouraging individuals and businesses and governments to think of the economy not as a linear process where we extract resources, we use them and then just throw them away like they have no value, but to really think about all of the different parts of the production process of a product and the use parts of uh, a product and how we use the, the leftover bits, how we use the waste that's generated from those products and processes to bring them back into the economy some way so they retain their value. What we're really trying to do is eliminate waste from the economy by creating a circular flow back into the economy for any waste products. So Steve, to what extent do we have any element of a circular plastics economy at the present time? How big of a change are we looking at here? We're looking at an entirely systemic change in the way plastics is produced, used and disposed in order to achieve a circular plastics economy. At the moment, the plastics economy is extremely linear. We use fossil fuels to produce plastic. That plastic is made into products that we use in our everyday life. Some of the plastics are used multiple times. Others, uh, as you will be aware, are single-use plastics, which might be used in plastic bottles or balloons or straws, those sorts of things. And we use those for a very short period of time. Then they get put in the waste disposal processes. If we're lucky, 
some of those plastics will be recycled, but the reality is really very few are able to be recycled, partly because of how uh, the waste collection system works in different parts of the world, and partly because the recycling infrastructure is missing in large parts of the world too. And what tends to happen is the plastic waste goes to landfill sites instead, uh, and sometimes the waste is even exported to other countries uh, to be dealt with there, where it might be, unfortunately, sometimes just burned. Uh, and that creates all sorts of problematic environmental and human health implications. In the sense of a circular plastics economy, we, we absolutely minimise as much as possible the amount of plastic that goes to landfill or through any other waste channel, whereby there is no route back for them into the economy. Yes, and as we touched on in the introduction, they will languish for hundreds of years before they would they would uh, naturally break down into their component parts, which seems like a good moment to bring Professor John McGeehan into the conversation. John, thanks for joining us. Can you tell me about your role at uh, the University of Portsmouth Centre for Enzyme Innovation? Thanks, John. Yes, and thanks, Steve, for that nice introduction. So what we're doing as a research group is trying to deliver solutions that can tackle some of that difficult plastic waste that, that Steve was, was talking about. So I lead a, a centre. We're now around 30 scientists at the University of Portsmouth and we've been running for a couple of years. We've been working on enzymes for, for many decades, actually, but actually more recently we've turned our attention to breaking down plastics with, with enzymes. We've uh, recently attracted uh, multi-million pound funding and that's really important because what that has allowed us to do is recruit a superb range of scientists from all over the world to join, join our team here in Portsmouth to look at solutions. So really we're bringing together lots of different disciplines from environmental zoology and discovery, microbiology, through to the areas that I'm more involved in, sort of enzyme engineering and, and all the computing around that. And uh, finally, linking to industry as well, because we see that as a, a really important part of the centre. John, there's a couple of technical terms that are probably going to come up in our conversation. So I wonder if I could ask you to uh, define those at the outset. And those terms are uh, PET and microplastics. Sure. So PET or PET is a type of plastic called polyethylene terephthalate. And it's one of the most common plastics you'll find in packaging and single use applications. But accounts for about maybe 20% of the, the plastic in the environment. In terms of microplastics, uh, this is really where the plastics get mechanically broken down into smaller and smaller pieces. There's a few different definitions, confusingly, for microplastics. And basically, these are bits of plastic that are small enough to be uptaken by organisms and uh, assimilated. And we even have nanoplastics, these very, very tiny parts of plastics that you can only see under a microscope. And again, uh, we're looking to try and find out the effect those have on the environment and the uh, organisms that live within that environment. And when it comes to um, the, the production, as well as the disposal of plastics and uh, microplastics, can we touch on the um, the impact on health here? And I suppose there are two sides of that. There's the impact on animal health in the wild. There's, there's the, also an impact on human health. This is a, a really difficult area because it's it's really quite controversial. There are some scientists out there that think that the the fragments of these microplastics that enter the food chain aren't necessarily going to be damaging and others that think that actually there's there's huge health risks. I think what we do know is that when plastics do end up in the environment, they 
over time, if, if for example, a plastic bottle is in the sea uh, through waves and, and the action of sunlight, it will gradually break down into smaller and smaller pieces and inevitably end up in the food chain. And, and we now know that it is very much in the food chain and it reaches uh, human cells. What it does there is, is uh, remains an open question and there's lots of science to be done. We know the plastics themselves in the making of those, some of those materials contain additives such as plasticizers, uh, fire retardants and dyes, of course. And some of those are, we know are quite toxic. So if they're ending up in our food chain, then clearly that's very bad. And Steve, from your perspective, why is it so important to get that circular economy going? We already know it's in the air we breathe, uh, the water we drink. It's found in the deepest uh, deep sea canyons at the top of mountains, uh, you know, in, in the North Pole and the South Pole. It, it's already entirely globally pervasive. So uh, the more plastic we can keep out of nature, the lower the risk there is to human health. A study conducted in 2019 by the Tear Fund found that in less developed countries, somewhere between 400,000 and 1 million people uh, die every year as a result of mismanaged plastic waste. And they put that down to the ingestion of plastic, so either by uh, drinking or eating, so plastic in the food supply chain, um, or through inhalation, so the breathing in uh, of toxic uh, plastic waste. And a lot of this was associated with the people who work at plastic dump sites in large cities in the global south, where the facilities don't exist to recycle or to treat the waste plastic safely. So it's burned. And the people who do the burning breathe in the toxic gas. And as a result of which, they suffer all sorts of you know, terrible medical problems, which can be traced back to the inhalation or ingestion uh, of plastics. So John is right to say that a lot of work still needs to be done to understand the precise pathways through which medical impacts are generated. But in a broader sense, there's quite a lot of circumstantial evidence to say that uh, the mistreatment of plastic waste, which ideally in a circular economy wouldn't even exist, is creating huge impacts on some of the poorest people in the world. Gosh, that's a very stark description of what's going on there and just, just goes to show how really important and urgent it is to get a grip on this. Coming back to you, John, then, your team at the Centre for Enzyme Innovation has been working on a pretty major project which stands to potentially play a very big part in the plastic revolution, hasn't it? So what we're doing is really looking to nature. We we have this, we've done this really unfortunate global experiment by putting millions, billions of tons of plastic waste into the environment. And uh, remarkably, when you look into places like waste dumps, we see that nature is evolving its own solutions to deal with this, albeit at a, a quite a slow pace. Scientists looking in a rubbish dump in Japan discovered a bacterium that is actually living not off the sugar on, on those waste fizzy drinks bottles, but actually the plastic itself. And these bacteria um, are secreting a couple of enzymes and these enzymes, a bit like molecular scissors, are snipping up the plastic into its original components. Uh, and this is really exciting because if we can take that waste plastic, reduce it down using these enzymes into its building blocks, then we have this potential to do infinite recycling. And that's really part of the circular economy idea that uh, Steve was talking about. 
I'm curious to to understand how you see your work potentially being used then in industry with a view to minimising the impact of plastic waste in our environment. The the current routes for for dealing with plastic are generally quite poor. Uh, Very few plastic bottles are turned back into plastic bottles, despite we have technologies to do this, in fact. Um, And part of that problem is the the price of oil and gas is extremely cheap. So it's very cheap to make virgin monomers to make plastic. And the predictions are at the moment looking at a trajectory to 20% of those fossil resources going into plastic by 2050, which is incredibly terrible to think about because a lot of those plastics literally are used for minutes before ending up back in the ground as, as landfill. So what we're really interested in is delivering solutions to industry that are cheap, scalable and effective. And really, that's where we think enzymes has a great role to to play. Currently, plastics are often melted down and uh, mechanically and chemically recycled, using huge amounts of energy uh, and uh, generating a lot of waste products. Whereas enzymes can operate almost at room temperature or certainly warm bath temperature, so very low energy. They break down the plastic into its original components, which can then be purified and reused again. These are identical to the ones you get from oil and gas. So effectively, you replace that route. Um, and that's, that's a really important factor. So what we really need to do then is speed up the efficiency of those enzymes to make them more competitive with the processes that rely on fossil resources at the moment. And you've had, uh, as we record this in uh, October 2020, you've had a, a, a relatively recent uh, breakthrough around that, creating a cocktail of enzymes. Can you explain uh, what happened there? The first enzyme we worked on is an enzyme called PETES, which digests PET into its building blocks. And we found the bacteria that was found in that Japanese recycling dump actually produces a second enzyme. So we took that into the laboratory and actually attached the two enzymes together, linking their DNA code and creating this chimeric uh, super enzyme that some have, have named it. And that's about six times faster than the original one. So that, that's a good trajectory. Really, we want to be 100 times faster, though. So uh, all the research group are currently working very hard at the moment to generate even faster enzymes. And we're making good progress, actually. Fantastic. Could you engineer a little cape onto the uh, the super enzyme? <laughs> if, <laughs> yes, I mean, that would be ideal, really. Um, that would uh, uh, endear the public a bit more with this technology. Of course, the practicalities are that um, there's lots of lots of people in white coats working for many hours around uh, laboratory benches. The, the truth of how such things come about. And it's not uh, the only, the super enzyme is not the only groundbreaking initiative happening here at the University of Portsmouth. Uh, we also have Revolution Plastics, uh, which Steve, you're a, a driving force behind. Yes, so uh, Revolution Plastics is the university's own initiative to tackle the negative effects of plastic throughout its entire life cycle from uh, production, use, and ultimately uh, disposal. Uh, and we have, as a university have decided to take a stance on this. Uh, we feel that this is something that we can contribute to through our research and through our, our practice and through leading by example as a university to really uh, make a difference in and, and bring all of our research together across all of the multitude of disciplines that we have within the university to really tackle the plastics problem in a holistic way. There are three main components to Revolution Plastics. Uh, the first is essentially working within the university to get our own house in order. 
we, if we're going to offer any degree of leadership on this, need to uh, minimize our use of plastics. We need to eliminate the use of single-use plastics. We're also, as a university, committed to becoming climate positive, which means going beyond carbon neutral. So simply by existing, we reduce the amount of carbon in the atmosphere. The second part of Revolution Plastics is to work with colleagues like John and lots of other people around the university who are driving forward a compelling research agenda that will make a difference in a very actionable way to resolving the plastics problem. Uh, John has described the work he and his team are doing. There are also people working in our engineering departments to uh, look at alternative materials to, to take plastic out of the supply chain entirely. Uh, we're working with people in our fashion uh, department to uh, identify opportunities to reduce plastics in clothing. We're working with our marine scientists to look at the impacts of plastics on marine life. Uh, we're also working with uh, the economists to look at how we can actually go about developing a circular economy. But we're also working in the international policy domain as well. And the third part of Revolution Plastics is to work with the city of Portsmouth, trying to create a community of committed organisations and individuals in the city who are really trying to tackle the plastics problem. So Steve, I mean, we've talked quite a bit about the, the damage that's been done to the environment and to health. Um, a lot of what we're talking about is changes going forward to, to sort of protect the future, I suppose. Is there anything that we can do to reverse any of the damage that's been done already? Yes, there are. I mean, we, we know from, you know, terrible oil slicks and from terrible pollution incidents uh, all around the world that nature has a way of bouncing back. Uh, the challenge often is over what timescale and what are the implications for people who may rely upon the products and services that nature provides for us. There's a whole movement towards ecosystem restoration right now. And in fact, the 10 years from January 2021 is the UN decade of ecosystem restoration, where there's a, a global scale effort to restore damaged habitats, including habitats damaged by plastic. But it's, it's a very much a case of prevention is better than cure, I would say, with respect to plastics. What can we do in our everyday lives? How can we change our behaviour in a way that might make some sort of a difference here? Well, this is an interesting question. Uh, there's a, a very strong school of thought that actually it's up to big business and governments to really shape the response to the plastics problem because citizens and consumers are, are only part of the the supply chain of plastic, if I could put it that way. And actually, mm. often we're, we as consumers are locked in to buying plastics because there are simply no alternatives. So I would be really reluctant to place any, any blame or, or excessive responsibility on us as individuals to uh, solve the problem. But what I would say is we can absolutely ease the pressure that our waste management system is under. The first one is just simply to use less plastic if you wanted to uh, do one other thing, I would suggest abandoning single-use plastic, uh, avoiding single-use plastic as much as possible. Two great suggestions. And um, coming back to the superheroes in lab coats, John, are there other solutions that you think science might be able to offer us uh, to help us in the plastics revolution? 
I mean, I do believe that scientists are, are very innovative and there's probably solutions yet to come that we don't even know about yet. Certainly from my group, we're, uh, we're collaborating very widely uh, with uh, groups all around the world um, and sharing ideas and uh, pushing those forward. I mean, for our own speciality, we're now looking at uh, everywhere from rubbish dumps to hot springs and Yellowstone National Park, looking for strange bacteria that are producing enzymes that can actually break down some of our other waste products. Um, you know, one of the difficulties that uh, waste management has to deal with is the mixed plastic waste. It's, it's, uh, it's not just one particular plastic, it's all mixed together. And all, all, even in composites, if you look at modern aircraft and cars, they're all glued together. These are very difficult things to recycle. But it's actually a massive opportunity then for enzymes that are quite selective to break those different types of plastics down one at a time and hopefully get value out of them. Because really, if we can start getting value out of plastic wastes, then the economics of the system will start to drive things forward in a positive way. But to get there, we've got a lot of work to do to make things economically competitive. Absolutely. Thank you both so much for your time. It's been a really, really interesting discussion. And um, I think one thing people can absolutely freely consume to their heart's content and should is knowledge. So if people want to find out more about your research, we're going to put links in the show notes to this episode. Stephen, John, thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, John. In the next part of this episode, we're going to be finding out how something as everyday as our wastewater and sewage system can have a tech makeover and how sustainable revolutions can benefit entire economies. But first, we need to start with how we manage our most basic natural resources. Developed nations are responsible for disproportionate use of the Earth's natural resources. In fact, humans use the natural resources of 1.6 Earths. It paints a grim picture for environments, but what does it mean for developing economies? Big change requires big ideas. We're going to talk about some of the innovative approaches to cleaning up and managing these systems and the kinds of opportunities that those approaches might present. I'm joined by Professor John Williams and Professor Pierre Fayet to discuss their work in wastewater and economics, respectively. John Williams, welcome. Let's start with you. Can you tell me why you've chosen to focus on wastewater systems in your research? Um, I think it all began with a, a general interest in the aquatic environment. I think even as a, a kid, we were always uh, mucking about in the sea and uh, fishing in rivers and uh, did notice the the obvious pollution which was present in those days. So it's a fascinating subject. It's uh, very multidisciplinary, covering engineering, chemistry, microbiology with a with a myriad of different technologies and layouts at different sewage work. I think everyone listening to this will obviously have a pretty clear idea of why uh, wastewater systems are uh, important to their own home and their own health. But why are they so fundamental to our relationship with the environment, John? It all begins with the, the, the use of water-based sanitation, which, which, which we're quite dependent on for our infrastructure. And there are other solutions. I've got colleagues who are looking into that, which, which, which don't avoid using water as a transport system for our wastes. But while we're tied into this technology, we're all going to be using about 150 litres of water a day to transport a whole variety of wastes. And that 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 impacts on, on the hydrological cycle. We're taking water from one place, adding contaminants into it and releasing it another place. And all of these contaminants can have different effects on the water environment. 
So what are some of the problems that, that we're facing here in the UK at the moment? The, the infrastructure we have is often quite old and people generally uh, aren't interested in, in wastewater infrastructure. You pull the flush on the toilet and the waste goes away. And uh, because of lack of understanding, people abuse the system. They put things down the toilet they shouldn't do. Uh, but we also have ongoing issues around uh, trying to address the, the broader environmental problems of, of treating sewage to ever higher standards, which... Uh, is uh, what uh, increases costs to consumers and also provides a technical challenge to do this to water companies. Okay, thank you, John. So we're going to come back and dig into some of the possible solutions here in, in a while. But first, I just want to bring in uh, Professor Pierre Fayet. So Pierre, you're um, you're the director of the University of Portsmouth's Centre for Blue Governance. Blue Governance. Can you explain what that means? Many countries, including the EU and, and, and EU countries and African countries, you know, have developed what we call the blue economy. But what is lacking all the time is the governance. Uh, so we try to be a bit upfront, you know, is that we develop, we combine, you know, blue economy and ocean governance and we develop a concept of the blue governance to have at the same level the economics and also the social and also the environmental things. Is this a bit like looking at natural resources around the ocean uh, as if they were a, they were sort of financial capital and considering how you'd manage those resources as if they were an investment? You no, know, that, that's a good way. I think the, 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 the thing is that when people are talking or even countries are talking about blue economy, it's mainly about increasing or developing you know, all the economic activities link we can say to the sea, uh, to the oceans, even to the river or the lakes, okay? But the environment, and we can say, you know, the ecosystems are more or less left aside, you know? So they are the poor, you know, uh, components of this, of the blue economy strategies. And on the other side, when you look at the ocean governance, is really about putting, you know, the, we can say, coastal and marine ecosystem up front, you know, and putting them, you know, really into the policy area in the way that people will take care, you know, of the conservation, the maintaining, and even, you know, the enhancement of the coastal and marine ecosystems. So how can um, protecting uh, a nation's marine or aquatic environment, how can that have value for that nation's economy? Well, in, in a very simple way, you know, if we take, the, you know, the, the, in the context of climate change, you know, if you take the uh, carbon sequestration, okay, so every, every country, you know, in 2015 has set up a plan, you know, what we call the NDCs, the National Determined Contribution, that they are implemented now, you know, for the period of 2020 to 2025. And in this document, national document, you know, you have a plan, you know, to mitigate, you know, the, 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 the carbon emissions. And one one way to do it, you know, it's just simply, you know, to enhance the capacity of the coastal environments or coastal ecosystems to absorb more carbon that they are doing at the moment. I'll give you an example. We have done a study in Mauritania looking at the value of the ecosystems of the largest coastal marine park in Africa is the uh, national park of uh, Bandarga. And we found out that this park on its own, you know, mainly with the seagrasses, was contributing to 20% of the achievement of Mauritania toward, you know, the, 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 the carbon mi mitigation uh, objectives. So 
the park is contributing to 1.8 billion, you know, to, to the Mauritanian policy. And it costs only 1 million. Yeah, and I suppose others might be um, protecting the, the marine environment for the benefit of tourism or for the benefit of uh, industries like fishing. But while we're on this subject of the economy and the ecology sort of meeting and uh, the value of different disciplines, kind of cross-pollinating ideas, um, John, I'd like to come back to you. How do you think our current view of the economy limits the possibility of developing wastewater systems that are more sophisticated, more environmentally friendly? Yes, well, yeah, we are, we are, we are tied into our um, system of economic growth. Um, and of course, in England, all the water companies are private companies paid for by consumers. So uh, it boils down to, I suppose, willingness to pay by the consumers. Um, but there's also issues um, around how locked in we are to the the current ways of valuing technologies, for example, uh, nature-based solutions, otherwise known as blue-green infrastructure, using natural or semi-natural or, or, or constructed environments using uh, plants, ponds and other systems, can uh, offer advantages, can treat water, the sewage and runoff. But traditional accounting finds it quite hard to cope with uh, putting a, a sort of capital value on something which is a hole in the ground rather than a, a, a made of concrete there's also the, the fact that we're, we're locked in almost to a, a technology system based around pipes uh, a colleague of mine peter crudis is very interested in the uh, toilets of the future with, which, which don't use water to transport liquids away which would require maybe a, a, a complete rethink of our of our infrastructure and the, the the way we've relied on water to transport this this waste around when it comes down to this question of sort of overcoming what you call the sort of traditional accounting mindset, where do you see the opportunities to improve things? Um, there are some. There are some quite interesting moves. Water companies are, are very interested in in what uh, blue green infrastructure and wetlands and so on can offer in terms of water quality improvements and economy. So they're they're starting to define in the latest documents uh, what systems they might consider adopting so that would give people confidence in which systems to select the biggest challenge is probably a lot of these systems give you additional benefits in terms of ecosystem services to the environment and health and actually how these get get accounted for and paid for means that the multiple benefits of other systems um, aren't always fully accounted for in decision making so so there are there are moves to integrate these sorts of thinking into uh, selection of technologies. There's, a, there's a, a big opportunity at the moment about uh, trying to complete natural cycles and really how we can think of sewage maybe as a resource where we can recover nutrients, energy, water and others, maybe metals and other compounds, other high value products from wastewater, which would, would provide a, a way of considering a, it as, a, as something which, 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 which has value which could then be offset by the investments in the technology to recover that value. And you've worked quite a lot with reed beds, am I right, as, as a, a means of managing uh, wastewater. You talked about these constructed wetlands. I understand reed beds are quite a, a big part of some of the work that you've done over the years. Yes, constructed wetlands um, uh, basically use wetland plants to basically carry out the same treatment mechanisms you would get in, in, in a sewage works. I don't want to go into all the nitty gritty of how we normally treat sewage, but it's all around usually getting oxygen in there and breaking down the organic matter and oxidizing uh, ammonia and so on. So, but, but, but reeds can do the same sort of thing in a very passive way. The trade-off is, is land take. They do use more land than an intensive process. 
Um, and there's all sorts of different applications of uh, constructed wetlands, incorporating maybe phosphorus recovery or or using them in, in, in even more of a less structured way as integrated wetlands where almost some land is set aside as a wetland to, to, to clean up at the end of a wastewater treatment works. Fantastic. Now, while we're on a positive note, Pierre, you've had a career looking for solutions to development challenges. What can you tell us about how developing nations are showing a new kind of economy? What can we learn here in the UK, for example, from the developing nations and what they're doing? Yeah, I think the first things we we can learn from them uh, is the the need to coordinate at the highest level. And this is something I think that the developing nations do do quite well. I mean, I've been uh, contributing to the development of the Blue Economy Strategy in Bangladesh, in the Bahamas, Seychelles. Recently, we have done the one for the African Union. What is surprising, you know, is the first the willingness, you know, to do things. Okay, and and they are, I think, they are using the right tools. So we were mentioning governance earlier on. So the African Union is is at the moment setting up, you know, a blue governance unit at the end of the the African Union Commission. Bangladesh has done the same, you know, within the Prime Minister office. Uh, Bahamas is on the way to do something else, you know, at the high level as well, Seychelles as well. They have already set up a blue economy department. And that, uh, if you look at this, you can say, yeah, this is great, but that doesn't exist, you know, in the UK or even in the other European nations. There's a need, you know, to have a coordination at at a very high level. In your experience, to make change happen from here, who needs to change their mind uh, and how do they need to change? How, what, are, what actions do they need to be, to be taking? Are we talking about politicians pushing environmental in- initiatives further up their agenda? Or, or is this about us, the public, voting with our feet uh, in terms of our behaviours, the products and services that we use? What are the, what, what are the answers here? Who's responsible? I, th- I think politicians respond to, to what the public say a lot of the time. Um, I, I think there are tipping points. I, th- I think part of our role is to identify where there are either ways of uh, providing solutions. So, so we, we had a project where we were trying to provide developers with a way of understanding the value of what is effectively a, a natural asset when it's actually costing them something. It's costing them a, a, maybe a, a space they could build a few extra houses on. Yes, um, maybe I can I can add. I think you're, you're fully right, John. I think everybody has to change. You know, in the way that uh, it's not only the the policymakers or the citizens, it's also the people who are providing. You know, the solutions. So, so that's why I, I was mentioning earlier on. You know, all the transdisciplinary work we are doing. This is something very important. You know, I mean, to to have the people thinking together in order to develop better solutions that can suit better, we can say, you know, the needs of the, the, the countries can be more easily implemented. We are working with many people in energy, in uh, including, you know, in, in pollutions and many different areas. And the work, the combining work, you know, provides, I think, talks better to the politician and even to the citizens uh, than we can do, you know, if we only provide one partial solutions. So I think it's everybody has to change on this. Yeah, and I suppose really it comes down to 
a, a mental shift from thinking about short-term convenience versus uh, long-term costs. And really, we need to all be bearing in mind the long-term costs of our uh, the actions that we take for short-term convenience. I would I would encourage people to just think about the infrastructure which supports their lives. So especially if we're living in, in Portsmouth on Portsea Island, we're incredibly dependent on flood defences, our drinking water supply, our wastewater supply, our waste treatment system. And I think if people started to think about what the infrastructure that supported them and the material and energy flows which go through everyday life, then 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 they would be able to to relate to environmental problems caused by their lives in a, in, in a much more meaningful way. Fantastic. Thank you both ever so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. I know we've only just scratched the surface on both of your research. And if people listening do want to find out more, go a bit more in depth, there will be links in the show notes to this episode. It feels quite exciting to look at our world and local economies and think we might find sustainable local solutions to current problems that can benefit the environment too. Thanks to all my guests for taking part today. I hope it's inspired you to think a little differently about how the everyday decisions and infrastructure that make modern life comfortable can all contribute to a bigger economic picture. You can find out more about all of our researchers and their work at port.ac.uk forward slash research. Next time, we're diving into a one-on-one interview with researcher Dr. Yuyana Kaminsky. We're finding out how your dog might secretly be influencing your behaviour. Dogs that produce that eyebrow movement more often were rehomed from a shelter quicker than dogs that produce that eyebrow movement not so often. Subscribe on your podcast app to get a new episode on your device every week. And if you want to join the conversation, do share this podcast on social media using the hashtag LifeSolved. See you next time.